Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Romans. Romeo chapter 5. Romans, I'll dive right in. Having been declared righteous, the Hebrew word there, of course, zadachah, then by faith we have peace toward Elohim through our kurios in the Greek. We'll dig into that a little bit. Through our kurios, our master, Yahusha the Messiah. There's our opening verse for us. Chapter 5, verse 1, we're talking about the righteousness of the saints. What is that righteousness? And we're going to be looking in a little bit into the kurios, that specific word that is brought out from the Septuagint, the master, Yahushua the Messiah, and how Paul deliberately attributes kurios to Yahushua. Look at verse 2. Through whom also we have access by the faith into this grace in which we have stood. And we boast on the hope and the glory of Elohim. Chapter 5, the book of Romans. It's really that chapter on the highbrow theological term, soteriology, the study of salvation. In fact, Martin Luther said of Romans chapter 5 this, In the whole of the Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. The apostle here most clearly describes God's grace and mercy and shows of what nature it is and how abundantly it has been poured out Upon us. So if you want to study about salvation, soteriology, there is no other chapter in the whole of the scriptures better than Romans chapter 5. The study of salvation. How you get saved, when you get saved, what is salvation, what is it all about. In fact, many of you, I know I've heard this, oftentimes when we get to this chapter in the book of Romans, how many of you have ever heard it described as a courtroom scene when you did the Romans Road, where you have Yahuwah is the judge, then we have Yahusha as the defense barrister, and then you have S.A. Tan as the prosecuting barrister, and you, the guilty, filthy, rotten sinner, is standing in the dock. Has anybody heard of that? We used to get that all the time when I was in Calvary Chapel. We'd get to the book of Romans, and it was all the courtroom scene, the courtroom drama, which is terribly cute. But it is so far off. The analogy is so wrong. When you really think about it, it has no places whatsoever in biblical exegesis. Because sure, we can look at the text and we go, well, yeah, Paul does um, talk about the legal ramifications of being justified. That is what is in view here in Romans chapter 5. But really, to compare Yahuwah to a human judge is kind of encroaching, there's that word, on sacrilegious, really, to compare Yahuwah with the human judge, it really actually fails on three major points. Number one, a human judge and the accused, they have no intimate sacred relationship at all, do they? I have an intimate 
sacred relationship with Yahuwah. It's nothing at all like a human judge, right? It fails on that point. Number two, a human barrister is hardly sinless, right? And we know that Yahusha is what? The one that gave his life as a ransom for many. What human barrister can you compare Yahusha to? It fails on that point terribly, terribly. And number three, a human accusing barrister may, a, may appear at times to be the very manifestation of the devil when you're standing in the dock as the accused, but they hardly have the power over all earthly principalities that the devil has, do they? So really, the whole analogy of a courtroom scene fails abysmally when you dig into it a little bit. And that is so typical of just the cursory read of Romans. We're looking at soteriology, the study of salvation, righteousness, and the attributed work of Yahusha. And it is powerful because the relationship between Yahuwah and the sinner is altogether what? It's intimate and it's sacred. And unless you have an intimate and sacred relationship where you can cry out, with Yahuwah and to Yahuwah, then my question to you would be, if you don't have that, do you really know him? Think about it. Think about it. Exactly. Exactly. I can do terrible things as a sinner, and I make terrible mistakes, and I can get caught up in the heat of anger, but I tell you what always happens with me as many of you will to attest, once everything simmers down, it doesn't take long for the Holy Spirit to get hold of me and convict me and for me to mourn and for me to be sorrowful over my dreadful behavior. Oh, I can get fired up with the best of you, more so than most of you. But I tell you, it doesn't take long. And I have to tell my wife this constantly. Honey, you're not the Holy Spirit. You've got to give me some time. It will come, but you can't convict me. Back off. Give me a while, and it will come, and it will come heavy, but it cannot be forced. You cannot play the Holy Spirit with your spouse as quick as you'd like them to repent. You have to let the Ruach convict, and that is an authentic relationship, isn't it? That's the power of the authentic relationship. It is an intricate, intimate, and sacred relationship, even in those times when you fail abysmally. You're drawn by the intimacy. Drawn by the intimacy, even in your failures, that actually produces more faith in you. Because oftentimes when I'm doing good and doing holy things... But it's in the time when I fail abysmally that he draws me super close because I need to be what? Healed and bandaged up because I'm a broken individual. A broken individual. So we look at this chapter 5 and really we have to focus on that intimate sacred relationship because it's against Yahweh himself that we have what? The sinner has sinned. 
And there we have that old whole analogy of the judge, Romans chapter 5, is really foolish because it's not against the human judge that the man in the dock has sinned, is it? But in our case, we have sinned against the judge. So that analogy fails there because it is an accountability to the creator. Not some human judge that really you don't know from Adam and whatever you've done in a criminal activity, it's not against him personally, intimately, and sacredly, is it? But it is with the creator Elohim, and that is why it's so important. Because ultimately we need to be driven to, in Romans chapter 5, we'll be seeing a eschatological peace. You know, the kind of peace that the promised to us in the prophets the prophets promised us that we would have this transcendence of peace that would come to us when we made true repentance. So as I look into these first few verses of chapter 5, I see that Yahusha, the sinless lamb, closer than a bro- brother, provides what? Atonement, keporah, or in the Greek, hilsamos, an absolute pardon an absolute defense, an absolute shield from accusation and condemnation in the day of judgment. Whereas Satan's case against the accused sinner, represented by Yahushua, was truly, in an analogy, it was thrown out of the court of heaven over 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? Even those in Tartarus were delivered the verdict personally and powerfully by the bloodied Yahusha, were they not? So for 2,000 years, while we've been talking about this courtroom scene, it really fails. It fails in the analogy. Let's look at verse 1. We have peace toward Elohim through our kurios in the Greek, our master, Yahusha the Messiah. And I really want us to drill into the kurios. And I don't often use this Greeks, uh, um, the Greek, the Strong's numbers. But the Greek Strong's number here is 2962. And the Hebrews, um, Hebrew number here is 3068 for kurios. Kurios is found and has its beginnings in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what do we find that kurios is attributed to? None other than the divine name, the yod Hey wah Hey. That is what kurios is attributed to. Yet here we see Paul deliberately attributing the divine name to who? Yahushua. And this is something that the Jehovah's Witnesses just bypassed. But the text is so powerful when we really look at it. Curios. And where would we find, I love delving in and finding the origins of these words, where would we find in the Septuagint the Curios? Genesis, none other than Genesis, Bereshit chapter 15, verse 8. At the covenant blood ratification, we find the Curios. We find the curious. And then where else would we find the curious? The divine name that is now, Paul is now taking us back to it. And he is now attributing it to Yahushua. And he is now going to talk about salvation. So we've got to understand that he is a master scholar. 
He is not just using words just for fun, but he is hoping that you and I, as students of the word, will go and find where these words are, what the context of the surrounding verses is about, and how it can then be brought forth into our text of salvation, soteriology, with Yahushua. So let's look at the Kurios. Genesis chapter 15, verse 8. It is intimately involved the divine name and the cutting of the blood covenant that was given to Abraham. Next, you go to Exodus chapter 32, verse 11, and you'll find the kurios at the golden calf covenant breach. So you've got the two opposing texts here of the kurios. You find it in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, where it is written, Kurios Yahweh, or Lord Yahweh Elohim, how shall I know, Abraham says, how shall I know that I will inherit your promises? Well, then Yahweh responds that you will now flay open the pieces. So this is now connected to the Malkitzedic covenants of promise. And now we're going to find the kurios in Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. This is, of course, the golden calf. And Moses brought the Lord, all caps there, the Hebrew word there is the word we see, the yod Hey wah or in the Greek, the kurios. This is Hebrews Word 3068 in the Strong's Dictionary right here. And Moses besought the Kurios, Yahuwah, his Elohim, and said, Kurios, Yahuwah, Elohim, why doth thy wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why do you think, Paul, in Romans chapter 5, talking about the benefits of Yahushua, that he brings forth salvation, that he would use a word that in the Septuagint is actually connected to the ratification of the covenant and then the breaking of the covenant subsequently. Because is Yahushua the restorer of the breach? Is he talking about restoring us to salvation, that which was promised, which was then subsequently broken and is now being restored with Yahushua? Promised, curious, broken, curious, restored, curious, and he links it all back. Do you understand what I'm communicating? Because this is what Paul's communicating. He didn't just stick in curious because it doesn't mean anything. This is huge. Even Christian scholars understand the significance of the Septuagint rendered curious of the divine name being used by Paul. Jehovah's Witnesses are off doing their cultic dance and they will deny that Yahushua is Yahuwah manifest in the flesh. When Paul is deliberately put in the text guarding Yahuwah's people from the cultic and um, heathen cults out there. Do you understand? It's very important. It's really what I like to call the triad, the triad, the triad naming formula. 
What do I mean? It's a combination of the names, Lord, Yahusha, and Messiah. Lord, Yahusha, Messiah. Curious, Yahusha, Moshiach. It's the triad naming formula, and Paul puts it in the text, and wherever he puts it in the text, you want to go back in the Septuagint and find the corresponding texts, because it's going to reveal a whole bunch to you. Paul puts it in in verse 21. He puts it in in chapter 6, verse 23. He puts in the triad naming formula in chapter 8, verse 39. You can't but notice Paul's deliberate attempt to connect us back to the Tanakh's usage of the divine name, specifically in the Septuagint. It places, listen, it places squarely on Yahushua's shoulders the sovereign divine nature. To call him curious, a term that the Septuagint uses to identify Yahuwah by the divine name, is to do what? is to deliberately, intentionally, and willfully credit Yahusha as being Elohim with us, Yahuwah Emmanuel. Right there. Right there, you have literally got rid of a whole false religion. Next time you get a knock on the door, yes, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and talk about the curios. Try it. I've done this and literally never had a knock at my door again. I had this 80-year-old guy could not get back in the car and back it down my driveway fast enough once I started to talk about who Yahushua was with The prophets, the New Testament, and the Torah connecting it all together. Well, ah, look at this text, but look how it's used here. Oh, no, no, no. They'll just get you with, you know, John 3.16. Or John 1.1, I think, is the Jehovah Witness cultic approach. So I love the ammunition that we are given here by Paul against the cults. So let's continue on in verse 2 through whom also we have access, the Greek word there, as prosagoge, by the faith into this grace in which we have stood. And we boast on the hope of the glory of Elohim. Prosagoge, a bringing to or up to, a bringing up. And it's actually used in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 18, a connecting text. Through, through him, we both have access, prosagoge, into the one ruach to the other. There's the connecting text. What is the connecting text that he's talking about here? Again, we're talking about salvation and the benefits of salvation through Yahushua, the connecting text using the Greek word prosagoge is Ephesians 2.18. How is it used there? It's got all of that covenant language. Aliens from the common wealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. 
Having no hope without Elohim in the world, he, be- he made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, no more strangers and foreigners. So does this now back up the context of the kurios as well? The ratification of the covenant, the subsequent breaking of the covenant, and then the bringing in of salvation, soteriology, by Yahushua the Messiah. That's how verse 1 opens up. And now we're in verse 2, and we are now connecting through another Greek word to the same theme in Ephesians 2.18. Salvation, soteriology, from the nations, making you that were cast off, one new man through the salvation promises of Yahushua. It's all right here, and we're only in the second verse, by connecting the Greek words back to the Septuagint, or correct connecting the Greek word back to another corresponding text in the New Testament, or the Brit Hadashah. And therefore, it's not my opinion, because my opinion becomes Stephanie's burden. You don't need that. That's the last thing we need, is another man's opinion. So therefore, we'll look at the text, and the text sets us free from man's opinions. That's what I love. That's how I love to study the Word. It's not my opinion now. You can literally go and see, is this so? Is this how the Bible... The Bible frees you up from people like me. It does. You don't want to be under my doctrines and dogma. I don't want to be under my doctrines and dogma. Right? Because that shackles you to something. I want to be, I'm a liberal. I'm, the, I'm so liberal. But in the true sense of the word. Because I believe this is the most liberating book in the world. This is true liberalism. It liberates you from the shackles of slavery, sin, and death. I'm free from me. I'm the worst taskmaster of myself. To be in slavery to yourself is truly to be in slavery to sin. And you're the worst taskmaster of all. So I love the liberality, not the liberace, but the liberality of Scripture. Let's continue on. That guy was a fruitcake, wasn't he? My goodness. Talking about salvation and those that lacked it. But we don't know. We cannot judge. But uh, unless there was some serious conversion going on, I don't think we'll be seeing him. So as we continue down now, we have a look at this Greek word, which we saw in verse 2, prosagoge. Prosagoge, because as I connect further, I understand that Yahushua himself, he actually replaces the Levitical tabernacle, and that was only introduced. That Levitical tabernacle, we discussed last week, it was only introduced because of the golden calf. Even Rashi. 
And the, many of the other great sages admit that the tabernacle was a result of the golden calf. So if Yahushua is the solution to sin, including the sin of the golden calf, then he's also the solution to the Levitical tabernacle too, right? See, this is how I think. I think very logically, very concretely, and that's why I love the Scriptures. But you have to slow things down and go, well, if A equals B, right? And you have to be logical in your thinking. And we live in a culture where everyone wants fast food. It's microwave faith. It's microwave faith. It's microwave Bible study. It's microwave everything. But really, we need to be what? Crock-pocking the... Or whatever. The, that was a Freudian slip. How do we say it? What is it? Crock-potting. Slow cooking. Slow cooking. Thank you. Slow cooking. Because... If Yahushua is the solution to sin, including the sin of the golden calf, then he is the solution to the Levitical tabernacle too. If that's purpose, the Levitical tabernacle, was because of the sin of the golden calf, he is the solution of that too. That just makes common sense, doesn't it? Which is the point made by himself explicitly in the Scriptures and various other writers, including Paul, in the Brit Hadashah. So prosagoge means to gain access, and it comes from the verb prosago, and it's a term, a term used in the Septuagint to describe Israel approaching Yahuwah, and here's my point, in the tabernacle. So the very verb that was used to describe Israel approaching Yahuwah in the tabernacle is now attributed to Yahushua. So through Yahushua, all of the access that you had through the tabernacle has now been placed on Yahushua, magnified and exemplified. So why would you go back when the writers of the Brit Hadashah are communicating to you that what was attributed then is now attributed to Yahushua. He gives you the full access because he is the Kohen Haggadah, the high priest. Prosagage, you gain access. Coming from the word prosago, a specific term in the Septuagint describing Israel approaching Yahuwah, the kurios in the tabernacle, attributed to Yahushua. Look at verse 3. And not only so, but we also boast in the tribulations, knowing that the tribulation doth work endurance. And endurance, experience, and the experience, hope. Tough times. Supposed to bring forth endurance. Painstaking endurance is both supposed to bring forth experience. And with this equation of tribulation and patience and endurance, you get what? The sum is you'll live a life of hope. It's divine math. It's divine math. Tribulation plus patience 
plus endurance equals a life of divine hope. That's divine math. Verse 5. And the hope doth not make ashamed, because the love of Elohim hath been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that hath been given to us. And that's the thing. We can never be ashamed of standing out because of our supernatural worldview. Don't ever be ashamed of standing out just because you have a supernatural worldview in the midst of a short-sighted carnal world where the temporal world is what? It's fashionably in vogue, isn't it? It's all about the temporal world. And then you start thinking about denying yourself pleasure in this life for pleasure in the afterlife. And you're just a strange commodity indeed, are you not? Verse 6. For in our being still ailing, Messiah in due time did die for the impious. For scarcely for a righteous man. Will one man die? For the good man, perhaps, someone also doth dare to die. And there we have it. In verse 6, in due time, meaning in the correct moment in time, the correct moment in time, Messiah, he entered onto the scene. Right at that eschatological moment that was divinely ordained, at that moment is when, not not a thousand years before, not in the silent years, but in that time was the moment that he came onto the Essene. He was anointed Malkitzedek. He was sacrificed for human sin, and he was initiated as the Malkitzedek. He initiated the new covenant. That was the final stages and is the final stages of human history when it comes to soteriology, the study of salvation. It's all in place for us now. Nothing more to do except, as the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, I have prayed that prayer so many times for people. Oh, I pray today, today that she would hear your voice and take hold of the salvation that is already being laid out and is available to all. But is this the day in the eschatological framework of your life that you choose this day? Yahweh, the Kurios, right? That happened to all of us at one day in the final stage of human history. And ultimately, it's going to lead to the return of the Messiah. So when I was completely helpless, when I was completely helpless, finally I died to myself and I cried out. But I had to finally be like so sick of myself. Sick of myself. Sick of my decisions, sick of the consequences of my life, and finally just done with me at the end of me, then, when, then, salvation comes. When you're finally tired of yourself, trying to figure it out yourself, is when redemption entered into my heart. Really, I had no other choice. That's when he gets you. When you've got no other choice. I'm done. How many of you have done that? Brother John and I, we talk about it often. I'm just done. 
It's usually in, 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 in context of the world, right? We're just done with it. Done. Well, that's where I was with me. I'm done with me. And then my wife, she's like, I'm done with him. <laughs> it was different for her. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right on. You're right there, for, ready for salvation. <laughs> Yahushua said, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick, right? Look at verse 7. Verse 7. For scarcely for a right... I love this verse. For scarcely for a righteous man will anyone die... For for the good man, perhaps someone also doth dare to die. Doing good for good versus good for evil. Matthew 9 verse 13. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Yahushua's sacrifice was never and isn't for those who think they're righteous, is it? If you think you're righteous, Yahushua's sacrifice isn't for you. Is it? And that's the problem with religion. If you think you're righteous and holy, then Yahushua's sacrifice isn't for you. They will never, ever lay hold of Yahushua with that mentality. Never. Because they will not stoop to Yahushua's level. The righteous will never stoop to Yahushua's level. Because Yahushua does what? Yahushua crawls through the gutters. That's where he is. He crawls through the gutters of life. That's where Yahushua lives. In the gutters of life to meet people in their brokenness. And the righteous, they Going down in the gutters. Well, that's where Yahushua is. He stooped to that level to crawl through the gutters to find the broken and those afflicted. Because that's where I was. That's where I was. Whilst what? The righteous were seeking a holy mountaintop experience. But he's not up there. He's... He's down there. He's, he didn't come to call the righteous, but those in the gutters, the sinners, the sinners, not the Pharisees and the sages and those of the religious icons. No, those would, would seek a mountaintop experience of the divine. They'll miss the Savior. And the proof is this. Whilst we were still crawling in the gutter of sin and degradation, Messiah died for us. He died for us whilst we were in the filth, knowing where he would actually have to go to find you. He knew what you would be doing. And he knew where he would have to go to find you. Where you would finally be at your wit's end. And he did it lovingly and willingly. That is what brought me to faith because that is no greater love, right? No greater love. I remember when I was 17 years old, I ran away from boarding school. 
And I remember my father had already died. And I remember being in a dreadful place. I'd run away up to London. And my mother had rounded up all of her friends, all of my dad's friends. And I was literally in degradation. And they were all out crawling. The red light district, the most despicable places, because they knew that's where I would be. And I saw them all coming, looking for me. They were willing to go to those terrible places because of what? Because of love. Because of love. And really, when we're seeking those that we love, we have to be willing to meet them where they are at. Otherwise, it's not love. It's just religion. And religion has to stoop low. Excuse me, faith and true faith stoops low. Religion always tries to ascend on high. But we have to stoop low. So, wow. Whereas as I go through this chapter 5, it brings up, and excuse me for that, but it does bring up when I look back on my life and I see where I'm at now and I see where it, I often do get moved because I see how he was looking for me and would even use those in my family to try and manifest that love. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to share. Because Paul's point here in the text is that human logic and reason, it just fails, does it not? It just fails, and it fails on both points. Yahusha transcends human logic. He transcends human reason on two points. Number one, in human reason, it makes no sense. Look at verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will anyone die, but for, for the good man perhaps someone would also dare to die. But Paul's point on verse 7, is that human logic and reason fails on two points. Number one, in human reason, it makes no sense that Yahushua would die for righteous people. Logically, does it? It makes no sense. Even though technically, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there are, in fact, no righteous people, right? For there is none righteous, no, not one. So technically, there, there aren't any righteous ones to die for anyway. But number two, in human reason, it makes no sense that Yahushua would die for sinners. Because sinners are in fact his father's enemies. So now let's look back at the whole Judeo spectrum of things. Because in the ancient world, it was heard of someone laying down their life for a friend. Sure. Laying your life down for a friend, but for an enemy? That was unheard of in the Hebrew culture. Unheard of. Even the Maccabean Jews, the Maccabean Jews, they would lay down their life for loyalty to the Torah, but they would never lay down their life for the ungodly, would they? So this was huge to the Jewish culture. Oh yeah, they'd lay their life down for the Torah. You saw that in Maccabees. But they would never lay their life down for the Greeks, for the ungodly. 
You see, this isn't nepotism. This is true self-abandonment. This is wanton bountainness. And that's the faith that moves me. Look at verse 8. And Elohim doth command his own love to us, that in our being still sinners, Messiah did die for us, much more than having been declared righteous now in his blood, we shall be saved through him from the wrath. And I think that is what is so powerful and authentic about our faith, is that when you're a rotten sinner, and some of us have walked in really bad darkness, that often if you have walked in really dark places, you can feel like you've lost hope. And that's why so many people commit suicide, because they actually have lost hope. And it seems like it's an impossible way back, because you've gone so far. You've gone so far. You've made so many decisions. You could be an addict to various things, not just drugs. And it seems that your life is irredeemable. And that was, was me. And people would come and share various religions with me, and I would seek out various religions. But still, the way back to holiness, it was too far. I was so far gone, so far gone that I had lost hope. But it was only when I found Yahusha that he literally breached the gap and reached in and grabbed me and brought me all the way out. That in one step. So I'm not into all these 12-step programs and all this, you know. I think I might have shared to you all. I went to Narcotics Anonymous one time in London. And I walked in and I'm like, crying out loud. These people are really messed up. I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. These guys are really messed up. And I went off and bought some drugs and got high. And I didn't get delivered for another 10 years. I mean, that's, I mean it just doesn't work. It is not a 10-step, 12-step program. Because you've got no hope in that. He had the power of the gospel is he will reach in and literally pull you out and then empower you to walk in the faith. And that is amazing to me. Amazing to me. And I, I know, I was looking right. I know, brother, I know. I see some of those connections there. You can tell other people that have walked in those gutters with you. Because when you talk about it this way, they're like... Always looking, always looking. I know who you are out there. Look at verse 8. And Elohim doth command and commend his own love to us, that in our being still sinners, Messiah did die for us. Much more than having been declared righteous now in his blood, we shall be saved through him from the wrath. From the wrath. This is positional sanctification, and it sets us up for a life of personal sanctification. So the moment Yahushua reached in and brought me out from the miry clay, that was positional sanctification. But that wasn't the end. 
Then begins the process of personal sanctification. So the problem with religion is they put that all in one bucket of soup and you're saved, good to go. No. Positional sanctification is different from personal sanctification. Positional sanctification is a one-time work. Personal sanctification is a never-ending journey. And if you are positionally sanctified, you will show the fruits of personal sanctification. If your life doesn't bear the fruits of personal sanctification, I doubt that you are positionally sanctified. You shall know them by their fruits. See? So you've always got these tests to see if people truly are in the faith. One of these doesn't belong with the other. And one of them does. So, you know, verse 10, we're watching. And I know you're all watching here too. So there's a divine responsibility when we walk with Yahweh. There's a divine responsibility and there's a divine code of conduct. And it's contained in covenant commandment keeping, unlike commandments contained in ordinances. Look at verse 10. For if being enemies, we have been reconciled to Elohim through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life or we shall be saved through his living in us. I like that translation better. We shall be saved because he lives in us. No longer alone. No longer alone. We're not only saved through his death, verse 8, but through him being alive in us, verse 10. Living that transformed life driven by what? Conviction. Driven by conviction and purpose by the Spirit, verse 11. And not only so, but we are also boasting in Elohim. Through our master, Yahushua Messiah, through whom now we did receive the reconciliation. Death in Adam, life in Messiah. So right here, verses 11, we have reconciliation is juxtaposed between the first Melchizedek, Adam, to the final Melchizedek, Yahushua. We'll see this play out in verse 14 because death reigned from the first Melchizedek, Adam, to the last Melchizedek in the Torah, which was, of course, Moses. And then we find the final Melchizedek, Yahushua. What does he do? He crosses the threshold, building the one new man of Ephesians chapter 2 through the reconciliation that comes through the covenant which was ratified by his blood. You see, you can't comprehend Yahushua by singing about his blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But if you don't understand what his blood accomplished, where his blood was put, and the purpose for the shedding of his blood, then you'll miss the whole mark. Because it's that his blood was put on an altar and that his blood ratified the book of the covenant, the new covenant, which is given as Torah, is the purpose of his blood. 
Hebrews 10.26 says that we have to be very careful with how we handle the blood. You can't just dance around the blood. You have to make sure that you don't knock it off of the altars. And the covenants are what establishes the altars. Exodus chapter 23. This is very important. So as we continue on now, we see that blood devoid of covenant understanding is in fact akin to a ship, as James says, without a rudder or a mast. If you don't understand what his blood did in relation to the covenant, it's just like you're on a ship without a rudder and a mast, and you will never enter into the harbor of soteriology. You'll never understand salvation. You will literally spend this life, even as a believer, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine because you won't understand it in relation to Yahushua. Verse 12, because of this, even as though one man, through the one man, the sin did enter into the world and through the sin, death. And thus to all men, the death did pass through for that all did sin. So verse 12 and verse 13, speak to the introduction of sin into humanity and the place of the law in regard to sin and the presentation of Yahushua as what? The second Adam. He's presented as the second Adam, and all of this text is rooted in Genesis chapter 3 within that whole narrative. It's talking about the sin nature. And the sin nature, unlike I've said on many occasions, unlike the Dalai Lama, I believe, and I hope you believe this too, I believe all men and women directly, especially women, directly inherit... I'm joking. Nobody laughed at that one. Right, okay, okay. No, I'm no, no, all equally, just make sure, because otherwise, you know, the comments will abound, won't they? The comments will abound. Oh my goodness, he totally showed his hand. <laughs> no, all men and women, because there is neither male or female, slave or free, but you are all one in Messiah, are all born with what? The nature from Adam and Eve. We're all born with a sin nature. Through Adam, dead death spread to all people, and that, of course, is original sin. So yes, I believe in the doctrine of original sin, and I'll arm wrestle the Dalai Lama on that any day. Look at Genesis 8:21. For the intent of man's heart is evil, even from his youth. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Dalai Lama, that one. And Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Original sin, the Bible teaches it. We better understand it, because otherwise we'll end up in Buddhism. And that's not going to be good for anybody. In Ezra, it says, And you laid upon him one commandment of yours, but he transgressed it. And immediately you appointed death for him and for his descendants. From him there sprang nations and tribes, peoples and clans without number. The whole of humanity existed first in Adam. 
The whole of humanity existed first in Adam. Now, because of Adam's sin, is humanity in alienation from Yahuwah. That's original sin. Sin and death are intricately connected. One resulted in the other and now is passed on to all. That means all, all humanity. Festering what? An environment of death. Only to await the divine delivery of the second Adam. Or conversely, or conversely, the divine destruction, destruction, excuse me, through the manipulation of the Elohim that are in the nations. We're either going to be delivered by the one true Elohim, or we're going to be divinely manipulated by the Elohim of the nations. Because all humanity is under sin. That's the charge. Verse 13. For till law, sin was in the world. And sin is not reckoned where there is not law. What law? The law of Moses? Are we talking about the law of Moses? What law? It can't be the law of Moses. Think about it. Right? Sin couldn't be charged against anyone's account where there was no law. Right? We're all on board with that. But Cain was charged. Sodom and Gomorrah were charged. Everyone trying to go swimming and didn't make it onto the ark, well, they were charged. And that was all before the law of Moses, right? So we can't be talking about the law of Moses. So as I study more about the Scripture, whenever I come across synonymous, synonyms, and synonymous doctrines, I flee. Because that's all part of the proverbial religious soup. Oh, the book of the covenant and the book of the law, they're synonymous. Oh, Torah, Torah, law of Moses, oh, it's all the same thing. That's why the world and religion is a mess. Because no one differentiates between anything because it takes time to be able to find the Torah and the Elohim of distinctions. We serve an Elohim of distinctions. That's Tamei, unclean. That's Tahor, clean, distinctions. Outside the camp, inside the camp. Kadosh, holy, Profane. That is the Elohim that we serve, an Elohim of distinctions. So a Torah without distinctions belongs to another Elohim. A covenant without distinctions belongs to another Elohim. And a law, law, Torah, Torah of no distinctions belongs to another Elohim, not the one true living Elohim. It's the gods of this world. So I believe that we must make distinctions everywhere and verse 13, we make the distinction that we are not talking about the law of Moses. But because before the law of Moses, we'll have to find out what the law of Moses even is because we don't seem to know nowadays because it's all in the proverbial soup. But before Mount Sinai, sin was charged, was it not? 
So we cannot be talking about the law of Moses because we know Cain, the flood of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., etc., were charged way before Sinai, some way even before Moses came onto the scene. So we have to recognize, based upon verse 14 and various other texts, that Abraham, we know, that he didn't know Moses. He never heard of the bloke. Yet Abraham did follow Yahweh's Torah. Genesis chapter 26, verse 5. So here's the big question. Is it possible to follow the Torah and keep the Torah without following the law of Moses? Is that possible? It's exciting stuff. <laughs> Paradigm shifts. It's so hard for religious people to do the paradigm shift, though, isn't it? That's the problem. That's the problem. It's the paradigm shifts that blow your theology to kingdom come. And unless you can do those paradigm shifts, you will always end up in religion, staying there, and what? Festering and causing a bunch of trouble. But it's the big paradigm shifts. We've all read the scriptures, and we should read it more and more and more every single day. But it's those big paradigm shifts that unlock texts that you have been reading inside, outside, upside, down, in the sauna, out the sauna, up the sauna, down the sauna, wherever. You've been reading those texts all the time. But then you get a paradigm shift, and you can like read it with your eyes closed. And you're like, oh, I can finally see. Right? This is the huge paradigm shift now is with the law of verse 13. Abraham didn't know Moses, yet he followed, he followed Yahweh's Torah. So therefore, the Torah and the law of Moses are not synonymous. Just as the book of the law and the book of the covenant are not synonymous. The Torah, the Torah that Abraham kept wasn't the law of Moses was it? And now we're going to find what the truth is, because these are the big paradigm shifts. Just like the paradigm shift, Abraham wasn't a Jew. I remember a Jewish guy coming in here one time and me saying, Abraham wasn't a Jew. <laughs> he left. That's outrageous, anti-Semitic. You can't say that. I said, well, he wasn't. That's said, you were an anti-Semite. Shut me down, right? You just spoke truth, so now we're going to shut you down by what? Labeling you Mabel. Label Mabel. You're a racist. You see, that stuff doesn't work on me. It just kind of makes me want to fight. See, that's a problem. People try and shut you down. These paradigm shifts, the state of Israel isn't biblical Israel. Oh, you're an anti-Semite. Oh, my goodness. Well, you don't want to go to that congregation. They're a bunch of anti-Semites. 
Ashkenazi wasn't a son of Shem. It's not anti-Shemitic, is it? <laughs> oh my goodness, you really are an anti-Shemite. But hang on a minute. The Ashkenazis aren't Shemites, are they? They're Japhethites. Well, you, you can't. Read Genesis chapter 10. I don't want to read Genesis chapter 10. See? These are crazy things. These are what crazy people do. Paradigm shifting. And that's what we're talking about. And we're still in verse 13. Move on. John's giving me the look. <laughs> so, getting back into the text. Sin is never charged in the absence of Torah. Right? The presence of Yahuwah's Torah within the lives of people before Moses, before Sinai, had the wide-scale function of exposing the sin within the human heart. We can all agree upon that. We've already explained that. It's since the womb, the human sin nature, since the very womb. So where does this whole idea come from? That the law of Moses is the five books of of Torah. Where does this even come from? It comes from the Judaic religion, Judaism, which is a rabbinical construct that has then been inherited by the church system. So it comes from a false rabbinical construct. It's non-biblical. It's a false construct. This is where we get this idea, because now we're going to find out what really is. Not my opinion, but what the Bible says the law of Moses is. And it's not going to be my opinion. You're going to go into the Bible, and you're going to find out where that phrase, the law of Moses is. And if that's attributed to Abraham before Moses ever came on the scene, then what I'm saying is absolute pooey or whatever the word is. But if not, we have some problems because we have to break through now with a huge paradigm shift. The law of Moses, listen, the law of Moses, and test me on this, the law of Moses is literally the second set of tablets. The law of Moses is the second set of tablets tablets. Its inception point is Exodus chapter 24 verse 12, and it extends into the book of Joshua. You can't say that. Yes, the law of Moses extends into the book of Joshua. And I can be so bold to say these things because you can be so bold to pick up your scriptures and read it for yourself. And that's what I love about studying the word of Yahweh. And it's the lazy people that will call you names, racist, anti-Semite, whatever, that don't pick up the scriptures and they just listen to the yappity yap, yap, yap. But we're not those people. That's why we are few and far between, and we've all come to Torah to the tribes. <laughs> the law of Moses is literally, think about it, it makes sense. It's literally the second set of tablets, isn't it? 
It's called the law of Moses. Fancy that. Because Moses cut the stones. Moses talked to the people. It's the law of Moses. Moses didn't mediate this law concession, though. There was no exchange. Moses delivered this formal legal oration to a group. They could hardly say no. The other option was total death and annihilation. The law of Moses isn't some separate law from the book of the law. It is the book of the law, and it extends into the book of Joshua, but it is not five books of Torah, because Abraham didn't know the law of Moses. And this changes the whole biblical paradigm. But let's let the scripture inform us. So the phrase, law of Moses, comes from the book of the law of Moses. That's where it comes from. It's the short form of the book of the law of Moses. And it appears in the Bible four times. And the Torah of first mention is Joshua chapter 8, verse 31. The phrase, the law of Moses, is found in John chapter 7, verse 23, Acts chapter 15, verse 5, and it's in reference to the land entrance sign of circumcision. The land entrance sign found in Joshua chapter 5, verse 2. And the point of this is that the law of Moses isn't its own law or limited just to the book of Deuteronomy or limited to the first five books of the Bible because the phrase is attached to circumcision and it appears in texts outside of those parameters the law of Moses appears in texts in the book of Joshua. This is huge. To compound that, Joshua 8 verse 31 and Joshua 23 verse 6 are outside, of course, the first five books of the Bible, aren't they? With Joshua adding to the book of the law of Moses... At Joshua chapter 24, verse 26. Read it. It's right there. All mentions of the book of the law and the book of the law of Moses are synonymously interchangeable and begin in the law at Exodus chapter 24, verse 12, extending past Deuteronomy into Joshua with additions and changes. Because the book of the law of Moses, the law of the Moses, is short form. Now, this is where they'll cut and splice this teaching. And they'll get the bit where I said, not synonymous. And then they'll cut and splice it right at this point and get my, my tongue where I say it's synonymous. Because that's what happens. You'll get an edited version. Haven't we had that before? Just, my goodness, you got a monkey with a piece of film and a pair of scissors. And that's what you get. Bunch of funky monkeys. So in summation, the law of Moses is not the five books of the Bible. It's inclusive of the book of the law, but it extends into Joshua. Look at verse 14. I think we can move past verse 13 now. 
But death did reign from Adam till Moses, even upon those not having sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgressions, who is a type of him who is coming. Death reigned from the first Melchizedek Adam to the last Melchizedek in the Torah, Moses, where the children died to the book of the covenant because they broke it, and the book of the law was then imposed upon them. Until the final Melchizedek, Yahushua would come along and redeem them from the curse of the book of the law and return them to the Torah, not the five books of Torah, but the Torah that was delivered to Abraham. You have to break up these things first before you can even get into the truth. Not the law of Moses, but the Torah as the children of Abraham, we should walk as Abraham did. Now look in the next verse. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if by the offense of the one, the many did die, much more did the grace of Elohim and the free gift in grace of the one man, Yahushua, our Messiah, abound to the many. Verse 16. And not as though through one who did sin is the free gift, for the judgment indeed is of one to condemnation, but the gift is of many offenses to a declaration of righteousness. For if by the offense of the one, the death did reign through the one, much more those, these, who the abundance of the grace of the free gift of the righteousness are receiving in life shall reign through the one, Yahushua the Messiah. Of course, we're contrasting here between Adam and Messiah. First Adam and second Adam, verse 18. So then, as through one offense to all men it is the condemnation, so also through one declaration of righteous it is to all men to justification of life. Verse 19. For as through the disobedience of the one man the many were constituted sinners, so also through the obedience of the one shall the many be constituted righteous. And there we have our contrast. The contrast, of course, is intended between the actions of Adam and Yahushua the Messiah. Condemnation is contrasted with justification, where the power of human sin will finally, finally be nullified. And now the concluding concluding, excuse me, benediction, and the law came in that the offense might abound. And where the sin did abound, grace did over and abundantly abound. The sin, of course, we know abounded, but grace even more abundantly abounded. And this law here speaks of the book of the covenant. Because once the book of the covenant was delivered to the people, the people surely started breaking the covenant within 40 days. The formal giving of the book of the covenant subsequently stirred up that human sin, did it not? Once that covenant was given to them, it stirred up that human sin within them. 
They wanted to start a whoring and a dancing and declaring a feast day of their own. And they made a golden calf. It wasn't just the sin, but the sin, the seriousness of sin that was stirred up within them. Verse 21, that even as the sin did reign in the death, so also the grace may reign through righteousness to life, age, during, and through Yahushua, our Messiah, our Master. So the grace that increased all the more started after the golden calf, and it culminated at Yahushua's sacrifice. Why was there even more grace that came after the golden calf? Yahweh's inability to commit genocide upon his people when really they had just deserved to be wiped out and a new nation started with Moses. But even more grace was poured about upon that nation. Yahweh didn't annihilate them. In fact, he gave them the book of the law to tutor and guide them. And then when they went wayward, he sent forth his prophets. And finally, after they slaughtered his prophets, he sent forth his son. And they thought, well, how about that? He, master, has brought forth his son. Let's kill the son and grab the inheritance. And then guess what? It's going to be sold to another nation, those that are going to come in and graft into the promises of the covenants that are given. This is soteriology, the study of salvation. Martin Luther grasped a lot, but he also missed a lot. But he did understand that Romans chapter 5 truly is a powerful text. But if we don't understand the distinction between the Torah and the law of Moses the distinction between the book of the covenant, the book of the law, and we don't track the words that Paul uses, the curious, and the other word, I can't recall it right now, which connected to Ephesians 2.18. These words, we connect them, all deal with the soteriology, the salvation and study of salvation that comes alone through Yahushua. It's powerful, and really, I understand why so many people struggle with the book of Romans, because it really is a deep theological letter that was sent out to the Romans. I mean, they must have just got this letter and was like, what? Right? What? Powerful questions, comments, anything at all? No? Yes. The black man over on the left has a question. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that distinction. But uh, I was trying to locate uh, where you, the, the scripture in Ezra that you quoted. Oh, Ezra, yes. Where was that? I have no idea. Oh, that was 4 Ezra 3, 7. Thank you. 4 Ezra 3, 7. And you laid upon him one commandment of yours, but he transgressed it, and immediately you appointed death for him and for his descendants. For him there sprang nations and tribes, peoples and clans without number. All right. Any others? No? Yes, in the back there. 
the parson in the back. Hey, so a couple of weeks ago, I brought up uh, Telerad as the second Jerusalem. Yes. Right, so it turns out that, you know, there was a king of Telerad or Arad. It's in Second Chronicles. And there's also a king of Jerusalem at the time. So as we talk about these things and you get all worked up and emotional about things, they're calling people back to Tel Arad as Hebrew Israelites, and it seems to be a sham. It really does seem to be a sham, you know? And, um, and, and I fell for it, you know? So there, it's out there now. Like, everything is... It's getting all mixed up. And there is a basically truth and then a slight skewing of it, isn't there? So here, and it's that twist, has, and that's why we have yeah. got to be so discerning in these days and times. There's a national park there. So there's an old castle, national park. The Zionists have set up signs in the park saying, this is where the name of Yahweh has been found. This is the Holy of Holies, right? You, you can go there and, I, you know... Uh, so be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. Amen. Yes. Oh, let's close in prayer. Abba, we thank you, Abba, for your word. We thank you, Abba, that you have put in within your word keys and guards for your people. That, Abba, that if we would just seek your face, seek your ways, Abba, you have already built within your very word all the safety parameters to keep us on the narrow path that leads to life. We must unearth, we must dig, and we must pray and fast as we go forth into your scripture. We thank you, Yahuwah, for your goodness, and thank you for the security that your Ruach, your Holy Spirit provides, and the security that your word is. In a world that is crumbling, your word will stand forever and ever. And the saints said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.